Well, would you take out your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 36. It's on page 709 in your pew Bibles, Isaiah chapter 36. And while you're turning there, we invite any children, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. You can find that through the door over here by the piano. While we turn to Isaiah chapter 36, it's on page 709. Man, I am so gunned up to preach this morning. This passage is awesome. I, it, it's a great, arguably one of the greatest passages in all of Isaiah. <laughs> uh, Isaiah chapter 36. It's an amazing story, uh, a thrilling story. You can make a movie out of this. It's just so, I find it so engaging and enthralling. A little shift of gears from the prophetic type of literature we've been studying to just a, a good old-fashioned narrative, a story. And uh, it's a story that took place in 701 B.C., when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invaded Judah and surrounded Jerusalem. It's an amazing story. It's one of the most important events in Judean history. So when you think about the history of the Old Testament, this is one of those uh, big events. You may not have heard about it, but you should, because it's one of the defining moments in Judah's history. When I try to compare it, for instance, to American history, it would be to to Judah what it was in America, like the... uh, uh, Battle of Gettysburg. Everything hung in the balance. D-Day. Everything was hanging by a thread. Whatever happened on D-Day would largely determine the course of the war. Or during the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's as if the whole country for a few days held its breath. What would happen? And that, that's what this was. This was a defining moment when everything hung in the balance for the people of Judah. It's a great story. So let, let, let's just jump right in. Chapter 36, verse 1. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Let me just give you a little historic background because it really helps. Uh, Take out your sermon notes for a minute. This insert in your bulletin. says Isaiah at the top. And on the front you will see a timeline that we've used many times here. If you've been here in church, you should probably be very familiar with this by now. And this is a timeline of events and rulers contemporary with the book of Isaiah. You'll see there on the top the Judean kings, there's Hezekiah. You see him. That's who, who we're talking about, King Hezekiah of Judah. And then you'll see the Israelite kings. Well, Israel doesn't exist anymore because Assyria wiped them off the map. And then underneath you'll see the Assyrians and you see Sennacherib down there. But that's a great name, isn't it? Sennacherib. I wish my parents had named me Sennacherib. I mean, you, with a name like Sennacherib, you're going straight to the top. I mean, that's, that's a great name. So there's Sennacherib. And you'll see the big gray line going up and the kind of the Batman pow sign up there. Uh, that's, that's the event we're talking about. 701 B.C., when Sennacherib uh, takes his battle to the front door of King Hezekiah. Uh, Sennacherib comes to the throne in 705, 706 B.C., after his father Sargon II is killed in battle. And he, he's the crown prince. He comes to the throne. And what typically happened in the ancient world is that whenever there was a transition of power, all the little nations revolted. Because, you know, if you're going to revolt, this is the time to do it. it is an, the old king's dead. The new king's come. Is he going to be powerful? Who knows? Let's revolt now. So everyone, of course, is the typical thing. The new king comes. Everyone revolts. And so the first thing the new king has to do is go around and squash the revolt. 
and prove that he still is a worthy king. So he goes southward, uh, Sennacherib went southward and conquered the Babylonians who revolted. Uh, that would be like southern Iraq today. And then he went to the southeast uh, and, and conquered Elam, which is today like southwestern Iran. And then after conquering those in 701 BC, he goes north and then down south to the west to uh, Palestine. And that's where our story takes place. If you look on the next page of your insert, you will see a map. <clears throat> and you see some black arrows. This is the route of Sennacherib's march through Palestine. He came down along the coast, Sidon, Tyre, which this is one of the main roads through Palestine, was the, the coastal route. goes down into Philistia. And you'll see down at the bottom, the black arrows kind of terminate at Lachish, which was a, a fortified city. Now, it's interesting. You, you may be wondering, how do you know that's the way Sennacherib went? And this is kind of an interesting sidebar. The reason we know is because archaeologists have found Sennacherib's account of these same events, which is so fascinating. I've seen a picture of it. It's a big clay prism, uh, six-sided prism, and it's his annals. That's how they recorded things on these kind of prisms, and they would set it out in public, and people could go and read Sennacherib's account. So, so we have Sennacherib's account of this same war. And I think that's important, because I know some people wrestle with the Bible. They wonder, you know, is the Bible really true? I mean, these things took place 2,700 years ago. I mean, is this really history, or is this kind of lost in legend and in the mists of time, and it's been kind of embellished over the years? Uh, but then, you know, they find this prism, and you read Sennacherib's account, and you read the biblical account, and they're pretty much the same, except for one interesting detail, which we'll get to next week. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, but, you know, and so it, it, you really can trust the historicity of the Bible. This is just one, for instance. Archaeology has proven the biblical veracity hundreds and hundreds of times. It's an astounding thing when you start really digging in to seeing the historical reliability of the Scriptures. But anyway, uh, so that, that's what happened. Uh, Sennacherib comes to Lachish. You see that there. Uh, it's a walled city. He besieges it. And then you see a little dotted line. What he does is he sends one of his field commanders with a section of his army up to Jerusalem to knock on Hezekiah's door. Sell him some Girl Scout cookies, okay? He's going up there saying, you go talk to Hezekiah and you tell him that I mean business. And so uh, the field commander heads up there. That's where our story kicks in. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 2. It says, Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. So uh, here comes the field commander, and out of the city come three of Hezekiah's cabinet members, and they meet there to parley. This is what was done in the ancient world. They would, they would talk and they would go back and forth before the battle. You know, nowadays someone on a ship pushes a button, Tomahawk cruise missile flies, boom, that's the battle. But you know, back then, they did it right. If you're going to have a battle, you should have some parlay, I, I think. Some smack talk. There needs to be some taunting. And this is what they did back then. They, they, uh, they, they had good smack talk. You know, uh, I mean, this is what makes a war interesting, don't you think? You know, in the, in the Iraqi war, I mean, you know, whatever you thought about the Iraqi war, you have to admit, the best part was the minister of misinformation. <laughs> Remember that guy? We, I think he was called Baghdad Bob. Uh, this guy was great. I mean, this, like, every, anytime he was on, I was like, oh, he's on. 
Because he, he knew smack talk. He would say, oh, we're repelling your tanks and you can't beat us. And, you know, it's a, this is why World Wrestling Federation is interesting, because there's so much smack talk. I, I don't really watch wrestling anymore. I used to watch it a lot as a kid, but I, I, every once in a while I see it, and I'll be flipping through the channels. And the thing I notice is, is whenever I see wrestling on, I very rarely actually see them wrestling. There's not a lot of wrestling. There's a lot of smack talk. There's, a, there's some big guy. He's all, you know, covered in baby oil and a big Speedo and boots. And, you know, he's, just, he's standing there in the ring going like, if you think you can come into this ring and be... <laughs> That's what's fun about wrestling, is all the, the drama. So, I digress. <laughs> Verse 4, here comes the smack talk. It's great. Or you might call it today psychological warfare. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have a strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me, you girly man? You, know, you can almost hear him saying. <laughs> so uh, then in verses 6 through 10, uh, the field commander uh, systematically attacks the things that he knows Hezekiah is trusting in. So you can just see, this is a total head game he's playing with Hezekiah. He knows what Hezekiah is thinking. He knows what things Hezekiah is probably trusting in. And so he systematically attacks them. Verse 6, he attacks Hezekiah's trust in Egypt. He says, look now, you are depending on Egypt. That splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend upon him. Now what I think fascinating here is Isaiah said the same thing. Isaiah was always saying, don't trust Egypt. And, and, and the kings of Judah kept making deals with Egypt to protect themselves against Assyria. And Isaiah was saying, don't trust Egypt. You know, the thing is, when God talks, you should listen. And if you don't listen to God, sometimes He will send bad people and bad situations to you to say the same thing. So, you know, listen when God talks so you don't have to have the field commander come and give you the same message. You know, don't trust in Egypt. And then in verse 7, he attacks the religious faith of Judah. He says, and if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? And this, I find this very fascinating. You see the difference here between the religious worldview of Judah and of the polytheistic idolatrous nations. Uh, when Hezekiah took the throne, one of the first things he did was wiped out all of the shrines and temples around Judah. Because God was very clear. God said, I want one altar for me in Jerusalem, that's it. I don't want all these little shrines sprinkled all over the country. So Hezekiah, in obedience to God, obliterated them. That's why he was such a good king, because he really obeyed God. But it's interesting because that's totally opposite from the idolatrous polytheistic perspective. When you're an idol worshiper like the Assyrians, the more shrines, the better. You know, might as well have shrines everywhere and placate all the gods you can. So it's funny, from, from an idol worshiper's perspective, he's looking at Hezekiah's domestic policy on religion, and he's saying, you wiped out all those shrines? What are you thinking? And so, so he's kind of attacking them, but it's from an idolatrous perspective, isn't it? I just kind of find that fascinating. And then in verse 8, after attacking Egypt... 
the foreign policy after attacking the domestic religious policy. Verse 8, he attacks the uh, military strength of Jerusalem. Listen, to this is some great smack talk. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? And he was right. There's no way that Hezekiah could muster 2,000 horsemen. It was just a way of pointing out, you guys don't even have troops to stand up against me and my army. Then in verse 10, this is a real head trip in verse 10. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Oh, yeah, you know, the Lord, yeah, I know him. He told me to come and do this. You know, oh, no, he couldn't have told you to do that. But then again, you are being very successful. Ah, oh, you know, this is a total head game he's playing with. So this is all psychological warfare, trying to psych him out, hopefully getting the, the, the city of Jerusalem to surrender without a battle, which would obviously be better for Sennacherib's army. Well, uh, the three uh, guys from Hezekiah's cabinet realize this is dangerous talk. So in verse 11 it says, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. Now, Aramaic was the diplomatic language of the Assyrian Empire. If you were a diplomat or someone in charge, you need to speak Aramaic. Hebrew was the local language of the Judeans. And here's this field commander coming and speaking Hebrew, most likely selected to go to Jerusalem because he did know Hebrew. He was probably trained in this language, and, and so he goes and speaks to these people. But of course, that's the point. He wants to psych them out. So he says in verse 12, But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will eat their own filth and drink their own ruin, uh, uh, urine? This is kind of a, uh, this is a reference to a, a, a siege. It's a threat of siege. You're going to be besieged. You're going to have to eat your own... So, you know, surrender is the point. It's, again, psychological warfare. Verse 13, Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. And come to me. Come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Hezekiah can't provide for you. I'm the man, says the king of Assyria. Make me your new sovereign and I will take care of your needs. And then verses 18 to 20. This is the nub of the whole thing. Here in verses 18 to 20, this is, this is where we get down to the real issue. Now all of the, the uh, you know, bluffing and blustering gets pushed away. Now we come down to the real matter at hand. Verse 18, Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, The Lord will deliver you. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? And here's the sentence. How then 
can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? That's the issue. Basically, the king of Assyria, after he gets through all of his smack talk and blustering and threats, now comes down to the real issue. Basically, his message is, God can't save you. God is not God. You think you have a God? Well, everyone had a God, and I wiped them all out, and I'm going to wipe yours out too. This is the issue. Is God the real God or not? So Hezekiah faces not a military crisis. He doesn't face a political crisis. He faces a theological crisis. It's a theological crisis. The issue is not how many troops does this guy have and how many troops do I have. The issue is, do I believe that God is real and that God actually can intervene in life or not? That's what it comes down to. Do I believe in the God that I can't see or do I believe in the Assyrian armies that I can see right outside my city? Do I believe that God is in control of the events of this world or do I believe that the king of Assyria is in control of the events of this world? It's ultimately a theological battle that's taking place. I like how... uh, John Oswald put it in his commentary. Take out your sermon notes and look at uh, page 3. There's a box there with a quote. I thought this quote really nailed it. He said, This speech, that is the Assyrian commander's speech, directly challenges all that Isaiah had said. God is not the sovereign. Righteousness will not prevail. It is the nations of man with whom all must come to terms. As is made clear in chapter 37, both Hezekiah and Isaiah sense the theological crisis. That's what this is. It's a theological crisis which these taunts posed. If the Assyrian challenge was to stand unopposed, then all which they had said by the prophet and believed by man in Judah would be graphically shown to be worthless. Thus, in the fullest sense, as Smith points out, another commentator, this is a war of words between the word of the Assyrian monarch and the word of God which will prevail. The same is true in our lives. Whenever we find ourselves in seemingly hopeless, insurmountable situations, whenever we find ourselves hemmed in, penned in, trapped, without recourse, you must understand that you are ultimately facing a theological crisis in your life. It's not a financial crisis. It's not a relational crisis, even though those may be the precipitating factors. It's ultimately a theological crisis. Do you believe that God is real and that he can save you or not? Will you trust him? When uh, the, the single mom who works as a legal aide and is just making enough to scrape by, wondering where the, the money's going to come from to pay the, the car bill because the car broke down unexpectedly, and, and she starts thinking, you know, I should get a second job. And, and she finds a second job, but it's going to take her away from worship at church and away from her small group Bible study. And she says, oh, you know, what do I do? I really need the money. Can I really trust God to provide for me and, and give up worshiping Him and following Him with His people? This is when it comes down to real faith. Do you trust God to provide for you if you seek His kingdom first or not? Or when uh, the doctor says, it is melanoma. <laughs> do I believe that God's in control of my life? Then it's not some theoretical Sunday belief. I mean, this gets down to the core of my life. Do I believe that God has my life in His hands and will I trust Him completely or not? Or when your parents tell you that, yes, I know it's the beginning of your senior year, but we are moving to Oregon and uh, I'm sorry, 
You're going to leave all your friends. You're going to leave the place where you grew up. You know, is God really in control? Should you still obey God and, and honor your father and mother or not? Can you trust God or will you descend into bitterness and anger? When uh, there's an aggressive lawsuit filed against you, when you live with a very uncommunicative and unaffectionate spouse, when uh, any number of things happen, we, get, we scratch below the surface and we find it's a theological crisis. When you look at your life and you say, man, my life is so messed. My life is ruined. And, and I did it. <laughs> you know, how can God save me? Do you really believe at that point that God is real and that God can save anyone through Jesus' death on the cross? It's a theological crisis. Oh, here's one more. What if there's a church and they're bursting at the seams and the nursery is like, <clears throat> and there's no more office space and they don't know where to put classrooms and, you know, and, and that church is trying to get a facility, hypothetically, and they can't build a facility. It, it looks like a facility issue. It looks like a space issue, and it is at the surface, but I think deep down it's a theological issue. Do we trust God for our congregation's needs? That's it. Am I willing as a pastor to surrender all of my thoughts, all of my agendas, all of my own opinions, and to say, God, you do with this church as you please? That's hard to do. You know, I'm like everyone else. I like to be in charge of things. I like to know where things are going. And God brings us to a place as a congregation where it's difficult to see into the future. And we have to trust God completely. It's a theological crisis. It's a moment of faith in which we have to look to God alone for our, our future. And the whole time we're in this theological crisis, Satan stands outside the walls taunting us. That's what he does. He just makes fun of us. You're going to trust God? You think God can provide for your needs? Just take the second job. I mean, what? You think God's going to send you money from heaven? You know, come on, that's not how it works. Do you really think it's right that you have to move with your family before your senior year of high school? You're really going to honor your father and mother? Oh, that's ridiculous. You should be mad. You should put up a stink. You should make a fuss. Whatever it is. You think God really can change you? You think just by believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God can really transform your whole life that's been messed up for 50 years? Can we really believe God or not? It's a theological crisis. And now this theological crisis lands in Hezekiah's lap. Verse 22. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, which is a sign of grief, and told him what the field commander had said. Now it is Hezekiah's defining moment. This is the defining moment of his life. It's a defining moment of his nation. What will he do? And Hezekiah, in response, does two things. He does the right two things. He does the two things that any time you find yourself in any tight spot or hopeless situation, you should always do these two things. In addition to whatever else you have to do, you always must do these two things. These are the right two things to do. The first thing he does is he repents. He repents of his sin. Look in chapter 37, verse 1. When Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. Sackcloth, of course, is well, it's what it sounds like. It's cloth that you make old yucky sacks out of. And in the ancient world, if you wanted to humiliate yourself 
and humble yourself and, and repent before God, you would take off your nice royal robes and you'd put on sacks. And you would look terrible and you look horrible. And that was the point. You're humbling yourself before God and repenting of your sins. Now we kind of ask, well, what sins did Hezekiah need to confess? And I don't know all of them, but I think one of them he probably had to confess was the fact that he had been trusting in Egypt. Remember that back in chapter 36, verse 6? He says, look now, the field commander says, look now, you're depending on Egypt. Hezekiah had been hoping that Egypt would deliver him. And so that was part of his his defense mechanism. And sure, he trusted God, but it was like, you know, God 70%, probably Egypt 30%, or maybe it was God 50%, Egypt 50%. You know, he, he sort of had a foot in both worlds. Well, I got my fallback plan, which is Egypt, or maybe his fallback plan was God. I don't know which one it was. But, but he had this mixed allegiance. But something happens when you come into periods of suffering and difficulty in your life, is that it, God gets your attention. And he focuses you. He's like, gets your, you know, by the ears and puts you back on focus. And he says, this is what you need to be thinking about. And whenever we come into difficult times in our lives, it's always a wonderful opportunity to do some repentance. To confess our sins before God. To say, God, the way I was going was wrong. I mean, just, haven't you experienced this in your life? Even when I get the flu for two days, which is not a big deal, I just find myself like, more spiritually sensitive. You know, I'm laying there in bed or whatever, and I'm thinking... You know, God, uh, you know, are you teaching me anything? I'm suddenly open to God. It's amazing how suffering can soften us and stop us and make us think about God. And so the first thing you need to do is take advantage of that. Repent. Let God search your heart and see if there's anything in your life that needs to be purged. And typically there is. It may even be like, God, I haven't been loving you enough. I haven't been praying enough. Whatever it is, let the Holy Spirit cause you to repent. And then after you've repented, the second thing Hezekiah does and that we need to do is to believe. To repent and believe. To confess our sin and then to put our trust completely in God. And that's what Hezekiah does in verse 3. They told him, they told Isaiah, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace as when children come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master the king of Assyria has sent a ridicule of a living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. So finally, he confesses his sin. He repents of trusting in Egypt. He repents of everything and he puts his trust completely in God. One of the reasons that God sends trials into our lives as Christians is to purify our faith. People say, you know, Pastor, why is this happening to me? If God loves me, why would this happen and that happen? And I I, I usually give the same answer. It's, I don't know. I don't know all the reasons God is doing the things He's doing in your life. But I do know one reason for sure. Anytime there's any crisis in my life, I know there's one reason for sure, and that is God wants to purify my faith in Him. He wants to purge me of all my worldliness. He wants to purge me of my sin. And He wants to give me a refined, pure faith in Him. And frankly, what's more important than that? A pure faith in God. All the other stuff doesn't matter. You know, you're worried about your health, you're worried about your finances, and that's important stuff, but it's nothing compared to the value of your faith in Christ. And so God, He doesn't get distracted. He's focused on what matters most, your faith. And He's even willing to use fire to purify you. And I think that's what's happening here. Hezekiah is being purified. He repents, and then he believes. And isn't that what Jesus preached? When Jesus came here to this earth, his central message was repent 
and believe. And let me just read to you from the book of Mark. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read this one quick sentence. Mark chapter 1. This is what Jesus proclaimed when He started His ministry. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is here. God is in control. God is here to save. So respond to that by repenting and believing in Him. And I guess I'd just like to close by asking everyone here, have you really put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? I'm not asking, do you like church or did you go to church growing up? Because going to church is not the same thing as being a Christian and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Have you really trusted in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior? Have you confessed your sin to Him and said, Christ, I want to follow You? And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Are you going to wait till the field commander comes knocking on your door? Are you going to wait till you get into a tight spot? Do it now. now. What excuses do you have? I'm sure they're all lame. Come to Christ. Come to Christ now. Don't let anything hold you back. Because when you walk out that door, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how many days God has given you. Don't waste them. Don't gamble with your eternal destiny. Come to Christ. Find the forgiveness of your sins and become a Christian And let Christ forgive you and change you. Repent and believe. Let's let's pray. If you bow your heads with me. If there's anyone here who would like to give their life to Christ who never has, I'm just going to pray a really simple prayer. And if you'd like to pray it and make it your own prayer, I'll I'll pray a sentence and then pause and you can pray the sentence and make it your own prayer to God from your own heart. It it goes something like this. Uh, Jesus, I do confess that I am a sinful person. And I'm grieved at the ways I have sinned against you and others. But Jesus Christ, I believe that you are God and that you died on the cross for my sins. Jesus Christ, wash away my sins and change me into a new person. Help me to follow you and to walk in your ways. And Lord, I pray for all of us in this church, whatever situations we're in, whether we're in a sunny spot right now or whether it's cloudy and stormy, I pray that we'd put our full trust in you. We pray, God, that you would make us a faithful church. Let us be a church that truly is free of sin and truly trusts in you for everything that we need. Lord, purge us of our worldly attachments and our worldly defense mechanisms and our worldly ways and help us, God, to walk in the freedom of faith. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. So you know how the story ends? Come back next week. And we'll finish the story. A little cliffhanger for you. Hey, praise team, would you come and lead us in one closing song? Uh, let's stand together. We want to respond. Respond to the Lord. We'll worship Him.
where's Sean Keith? You come on up here, Med, for a minute. Uh, Sean Keith's one of our missionaries, Sean Elizabeth, and he's visiting from uh, with Athletes in Action. And right after the service, he's going to be giving a report on his ministry. So come on down the stairs after the service, get some coffee, and uh, hear Sean's report. And I wondered if you'd just uh, close us in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your new mercies that you show us every morning. Lord, thank you that you are a great God that loves us. And thank you that you put us in your crucible. You bring us to points of our lives, crisis, that we need to make a decision. Are we going to follow you and trust you, or are we going to trust in the world? Thanks that you put us in those positions every day, Lord. Although they're tough, help us to uh, trust in you and to always remember that you love us and that you will take care of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.